Let's pray together. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable to you. Father, I pray that all of us here would hear from you, that the meditations of our hearts and our minds would be acceptable to you. Lord, we want to see and know this Jesus who is presented in the scriptures. We want to see and know him that we might praise him for who he is. And so, Father, as we look at this text this morning, I pray that you would help us. Help us by calming any distractions um, that, that are going on in our own minds and in our own hearts. Father, that you would bring a sense of calm to us that we might not be distracted by the cares and concerns of the world, but that we'd be able to focus in on you. Father, I know that we come with many different uh, weeks behind us, some full of anxiety, some full of uh, frustration, uh, some full of joy, some full of sickness, some full of doubts. Father, you know our hearts and you know our frames. You know the word that we need spoken to us. And so, Father, I pray that by your spirit that you would speak to us by your word. Help us to hear and to believe. Help us to rejoice in your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, Pastor Ken is back. Good to have him back among us. And before his trip, he challenged us to read through the book of Proverbs. One proverb a day, a proverb a day corresponding to the day of the month. And, so, and he'll be preaching through various Proverbs over these next weeks. And so you've been reminded, you should read through Proverbs for next week, right? Um, but I want to just highlight uh, two Proverbs before we jump into our text in John. And the first one is Proverbs 10, 19, which says, when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. So the restraining of lips is prudent. And then Proverbs 17, 28 says, even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. So once again, closing the lips helps us to seem smarter than we are. Words get us in trouble a lot of times, right? People exaggerate the truth to make themselves look better. Uh, or we can use uh, words to cover up our sin. Sometimes we use words just to stir, stir up trouble. Sometimes our words simply show our ignorance. But when we look at our passage, we see that Jesus was in trouble because of his words. But it wasn't because of these proverbs. It wasn't because he uh, was exposing any foolishness of his own. In our passage, we, we find that the words that Jesus uses and the claims that he makes uh, make him appear to be foolish to the Jewish leaders. But in reality, they're pointing to truth. They're rightly pointing to Jesus' deity and God the Father's witness that Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. So in our text this morning, uh, as we look at John, my hope is that we will find four reasons why we can trust that Jesus is indeed God's promised Savior. We looked at the deity last week, and now we look at the witness. And so I just want us to jump right in, because Jesus is right in the middle of an argument, so let's jump right in uh, to what he's saying. And the main point this morning is that, that we can believe that Jesus is God's promised Savior 
because we know four things. The first is that, that Jesus always seeks the Father's will. Jesus always seeks the Father's will. A little bit of context for the chapter. Remember that at the beginning, Jesus had healed a man on the Sabbath. And when the Jewish officials objected, Jesus answered them in John 5.17 by saying, My father is working until now, and I am working. Everyone agreed that the father was working. Right? He held the universe in his hand. The same logic that, that Jesus said could be held for the father working could now be held to him. My father is working until now, and I am working. And then John records in 5.18, right, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So what we see then in the, the rest of the chapter, what Barry just read for us, is Jesus' answer to their objection. Right, last week, we looked at 19 through 29, where Jesus uh, answered his opponents. And we looked at the question, or we considered the question, who is this man, Jesus? And the answer was that Jesus is indeed the unique son of God. Jesus affirmed his deity and his words. And as we look at the remainder of this chapter, we want to ask the question, why should we trust Jesus? Why should we trust his words? And so as we look at the second half of the argument, by pointing first to his own submission to the Father. Jesus says, and once again, I would encourage you, if you don't have John 5 open, to open it up and, and follow along with me. In verse 30, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The Father has entrusted Jesus, the Son, with all judgment, and his judgment is just. But what Jesus is implying, that not only is his own judgment just, but he's also implying that these Jewish leaders were not seeking after God's will, not the way Jesus did. And therefore, their judgment was wrong. It was skewed. Now, in their own minds, I think we can be fairly certain that they thought that their judgment was right on, right? Their, in their own minds, their logic made sense and uh, I'm sure that they believed that their cause was noble. Right? They were defending God. Right? Jesus was saying that he was the son of God. They needed to defend God. But in reality, they missed the entire point. And really, one of the effects of us having a sinful nature and them having a sinful nature is that they were inclined toward pride and arrogance. Specifically, in the way that, that we tend to believe that we see and understand the world and situations around us with clarity. So imagine, just for an illustration, imagine you have just bought a very expensive, very nice camera, and I realize that, even as I'm telling this, that this is almost outdated. Like, pretend it's not a phone, but this actual camera, you gotta look through the lens, and the images are sharp and in focus. And you're able to see, when you take pictures with this camera, you're able to see details that you were never able to notice before with the naked eye. And then imagine, as you're going along, taking all these pictures, you drop the camera. Right? At first you panic, but then you look and realize, at least from the outside, everything seems to be okay. So you brush off the dirt, you just keep on taking pictures. But what you didn't notice what you couldn't see was that the camera was broken by the fall. 
The lens was cracked. The photos no longer accurately represented reality. And that's what sin does to us, right? We may not be able to perceive it ourselves, but sin prevents us from rightly seeing ourselves, rightly seeing the world around us, and ultimately rightly seeing God. But Jesus is different, right? Jesus is without sin, right? He is God himself, but he's also without sin. His lens is not cracked. His vision is not skewed. And so he alone is able to rightly see and understand and obey the Father. So as the divine and sinless Son of God, we can believe and trust that Jesus is who he says he is because he's the only way, he's the only one who can rightly see himself. He also does not seek his own agenda. He seeks the agenda of the Father, right? And he always, as he seeks the will of the Father, well, I, I should say, we know that he always seeks the will of the Father, and, and the ultimate example of that is going to the cross, even to his own death. Well, that, that first point is pretty short because it's only one verse. This next point is much longer, so I don't want you to like, worry that they're all going to be as long as the second point. All right, but we can believe Jesus is God's promised Savior because we know that right, he always seeks the Father's will and that the Father bears witness about him. Father bears witness about him himself, right? Jesus is not dependent, uh, we see in the text, on his own testimony. Look with me at verse 31. Jesus says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true, right? There's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he hears about me is true. What is a testimony? Well, the nature of testimony or the nature of witness, uh, and those words are interchangeable, it's the same word in the Greek um, throughout this text, is that it's, it's a statement of confirmation of fact based on firsthand knowledge or experience. But Jesus says if it's only from one individual, right, it really isn't viewed as being credible. And we even see this reflected in God's Old Testament law. Deuteronomy 19.15 says that a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. And we see that then even echoed in the New Testament. It's important for us to know that, that Jesus didn't say that his, the testimony about himself wasn't true wasn't reliable, but that only he didn't, he just didn't need to rely only upon himself. The reason why you can't just rely on one person's testimony is that we know that people lie. People lie and they make up stories, right? They make up alibis. And because of sin, as we said, people do not always perceive the truth accurately. But Jesus is not alone in his testimony. He doesn't have to point to his own sinlessness. He can point to the testimony of, it, of another. And he first does this by reminding them that they were the ones who had sent for John the Baptist. Right? You sent for John, and he has borne witness about the truth. And at the beginning of John's ministry, John the Baptist's ministry, we see back in chapter 1, uh, starting with verse 19, that the Jews... Uh, um, sent priests and Levites to ask John who he was. And they asked him, who are you? Right? John answered, I am not the Christ. 
Well, what then? Are, Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And listen to John's answer. He says, I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. In other words, they sent for John as a prophet of God. They saw that he was a prophet of God. And John identified himself as the prophet that Isaiah said would come before the coming Messiah. That's why they asked him if he was Elijah, because there was this understanding that Elijah would come before the Christ. John bore witness to the delegation that they had sent, but then he also publicly identified Jesus as the Lamb of God, right? The Spirit-anointed Son of God who takes away the sins of the world. We see that also in John chapter 1. And Jesus affirmed, everything John said about me is true. Then in verse 35, Jesus describes John this way. He says, he was a, a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice in his light for a while. That's interesting imagery that, that, John, or that, that Jesus is pulling out there about John, right? A burning and shining lamp. Well, scholars believe that it's an allusion to Psalm 132, which Barry read for us. He says, I prepared a lamp for my anointed. And then the second part of the verse comes actually from the previous verse in Psalm 132. Let me read it together. His priests I will clothe with salvation and her saints will shout for joy. The wording is almost identical. There I will make a horn to, uh, to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. And the, the wording in, in uh, John uh, in the Greek suggests that it wasn't just that he was, he was already on fire, but that he was ignited, right? That, that word for burning was lit, you know, was being lit by another and he gave light, suggesting that John's light, his witness, was derivative of a higher source, which is certainly true. But then Jesus says, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. One of the best examples I read for what this means was from John Calvin, and he gave the example of uh, the master of a house uh, lighting lamps for his servants. Right? He, he goes around and lights them for his servants so that they can do their work. But instead of doing their work, they frolic and they play and they waste the light. They waste the oil. See, the thing is that that these Jewish leaders, right, they saw the light from the lamp, but they didn't respond appropriately. And they will be held accountable, is really what Jesus is saying here. But Jesus doesn't need John's witness, right? Jesus was intimate with the Father. He didn't need, he wasn't dependent upon John's witness to add anything to his credibility as the Son of God. But it's interesting that he points first to John. So that he was willing to use John's witness, his testimony, for the sake of bringing people to salvation. And Jesus says in verse 34, not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. These Jews should have responded to John's light and come, but instead they squandered the light for their own gain. But yet, even that, even John's light, Jesus was willing to use, to point to, 
so that they might be saved. But like the servants who didn't use the light for their work, these Jewish leaders would be held accountable. And so it's a, it's a warning, right, even to us. For John Calvin writes that it is our duty, therefore, to strive that the great care with which he bestows in saving us may not be fruitless. In other words, what Calvin was saying was, right, we need to not waste the light that God has given in our own lives. I think about what are some of the lights that God has placed in your life? People who shine the light on Christ. And how have they changed you? Are you inspired by them and then you just turn away from them and don't change at all? Will they one day stand and say, I tried to show you Jesus, but he didn't change? We'll get actually more to that later in, in what Jesus is about to say. But Jesus actually then will point to a greater testimony. Jesus had a much greater testimony than even John the Baptist. And when he said he had another, this is who he was pointing to, I believe. Verse 36, Jesus says that the testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the Father has sent me to accomplish. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Those greater works are first proclaimed. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, God's testimony is first proclaimed through the works that God gave Jesus to accomplish. And I think what Jesus is referring to is his entire ministry, all the miracles, all the, uh, the signs, all the teaching, everything pointed to who Jesus is and who the Father is in him. But then he goes on, he says that it's more than that. It's also the Father's voice, right? Verse 37, he says, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. We think, when did the Father bear witness about Jesus? One of the first things that came to mind was when Jesus was baptized. Now, John doesn't record it, but we see in Matthew chapter uh, 3, verse 17, that once Jesus came up out of the water from being baptized, right, there was a voice from heaven that said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And it may be that John was referring to that, or Jesus was referring to that, and that's what John records here. But, but then Jesus says to them, and I think this is where he's getting at, he said, his voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. I think what Jesus is really doing, what he's saying to these Jewish leaders is, He's confronting them. He's reminding them, right? You think you're so great. You think you've got this all figured out. But let me remind you, you've never heard the Father's voice. But who had? Well, Moses. Moses had heard God's voice. Right? And they knew that. Right? They'd never seen the form of God. And, and yet, if they thought about it, Jacob had. Jacob wrestled with God. And you do not have, your word, you do not have his word abiding in you. And, and we can even look to Joshua. Right? Joshua said uh, right, that, that, that the word would be in him. Right? The evidence right, that, that they hadn't seen, they hadn't, they hadn't heard, um, they didn't know uh, God or his word was, was that they didn't believe. He said, for you did not believe the one who sent me. And then this is right when Jesus points to the scriptures, really to all of the scriptures. Here he would have been talking to the Old Testament but he said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. And yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. 
So when we think about the whole of Scripture, particularly the Old Testament, right, this is where Jesus acknowledges it's all about him. Right? Jesus acknowledged that, 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 yes, these guys had searched the Scriptures. They knew the Scriptures, and they should have seen and understood who Jesus was. They rightly believed right, that the message of eternal life was found in the Scriptures. Right? And, and we would affirm that too. Right? The knowledge of who Christ is, who God is, can be found in no other place than in his word. Otherwise, we do the same thing that these Jewish leaders do, and we make God in our image. And so we look to the scriptures, and that was what Jesus was pointing to. And yet, we have to acknowledge that the very act of studying the scriptures is not intrinsically life-giving if you fail to understand what the scriptures are talking about. So you can spend all your time studying the scriptures, but if you don't understand the message, it's not going to give you life. When I was at Illinois State, uh, some of my friends were encouraging me to, uh, for one of our electives, uh, they said, you got to take the history of the Bible. Right? It, it's, it's this Bible class that you got to take. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm in a state school, and you, take, you want me to take a, a class about the Bible? No, it's really interesting. I found out that the teacher was not a Christian. The teacher wasn't Jewish. The teacher had no interest in the scriptures other than a literary text. I didn't take it. I didn't take that class. But that teacher knew the scriptures inside and out. And what I found out much later had happened was there were a lot of Christians who would take that class and try to use the scriptures to evangelize the professor. But by the time I graduated, he still wasn't a Christian, so I don't, don't know what happened to him. But it's just another evidence that we can study and still get it wrong. But we find God's testimony of Jesus throughout. If we look, we find testimony of Jesus throughout the scriptures. And we find them whenever God held out hope of salvation. Whenever there was hope of coming salvation, that was pointing to Jesus. Right? So think about when Adam and Eve were clothed with animal skins instead of dying on that day that they first ate of the fruit. Right? Think of the, the lamb that was caught in the thicket as a substitute for when Isaac was being sacrificed. The deliverance of Israel by the hand of Moses. The sacrifice of atonement itself and the whole sacrificial system. The teaching of the prophets. Really, all of Hebrews chapter 11, right? The, the, the chapter that's by faith, all of these people believed, and yet the promise that they were believing in, they didn't see it. All of this stood as evidence, and yet these Jewish leaders refused to come to Jesus that they might have life. And so we ask, why? Why did they not come to Jesus? And the answer is because they didn't want to. I mean, I think that's the reason why we don't do things, right? Why we, we don't believe things, right? We don't want to, right? Their own ignorance and blindness was due to their own stubborn rejection of Christ. I mean, we could argue, right? They didn't have eyes to see, and that's true, but their stubbornness was just as true. We see in 2 Corinthians 3.14 that their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remained un unlifted because only through Christ it is taken away. 
Right? And so the one that they were debating was the very one who could have lifted the veil from their eyes and shown them that they too could have eternal life. We can believe right, that Jesus is God's promised savior because God has put such an overwhelming amount of evidence throughout the scriptures that, are, that God intended uh, to bring salvation through Jesus Christ from the very beginning. So in other words, this story of Jesus coming, it, it's there from page one all the way through. God has testified throughout the scriptures that there is one name under heaven by which people can be saved, and that name is Jesus. I mentioned last week that I came to Christ while I was in college, and a friend of mine had shared the gospel with me, and it finally made sense. Right, but it, it was actually... It was actually the testimony of his life, the consistency that I saw for the first time in another human being of someone who claimed to believe and yet lived his life in a way that, that showed he actually did believe. And you may say, Steve, you must have grown up with a lot of horrible Christians, and you would probably be right. right? I, I, didn't, I didn't have a whole lot of great examples growing up of what a Christian life and integrity would look like, but here was this young man, this freshman in college, who actually lived what he believed. And that was what opened my eyes and said, I gotta listen to this guy. It was the testimony of his life that caused me to listen to the message of the gospel. John 3.19 tells us that the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. Right? My works had been evil. Right? I love the darkness. But there was something about this young man who made the light safe. And so I was willing to listen. And when we think about our own testimony, right, the people that God has placed in our lives, the unbelievers that God has placed in our lives, I want you to think about that, that your own life stands as a testimony, a bridge that allows, even as John the Baptist did for these Jews, an opportunity to share who Christ is. Right? Christ becomes safe doesn't become a threat. To these Jewish leaders, he was a threat. They should have been able to, to receive Christ because of John, but they didn't. They should have been able to see Jesus. I'm sorry, they should, should have been able to see Jesus through the scriptures, but they didn't. But God may use you in the life of your unbelieving friends. So I would encourage you to, to think about your own testimony, your own life, and how it reflects the gospel. Well, may God use you, right? But we believe, we are able to believe that Jesus is God's promised Savior because we know that Jesus always seeks the Father's will, not his own. The Father bears witness about him throughout the scriptures. And then the third point is that Jesus comes in the Father's name seeking the Father's glory. Not seeking his own glory, but seeking the Father's glory. And as we consider this third point, I think it's helpful for us to consider what do we mean when we talk about glory? What does glory mean? Pastor John Piper once said that glory is the radiance of God's holiness, the radiance of his manifold, infinite worth, and valuable perfect, uh, perfections. Right? It is the public display of the infinite beauty and worth of God. So God is of amazing, great worth. And the glory is the display of that. 
We glorify God when we talk with others about his great value to us. So what does Jesus mean in verse 41 when he says, I do not receive glory from people? Well, Jesus knows that his works testify about who he is. And in doing so, they manifest his glory. Right? What Jesus, I think, is saying here is that he is not dependent upon receiving or accepting glory and praise from other people. Right? What is his entire commitment? It's to the Father, to pleasing the Father, and therefore then receiving the honor that the Father bestows. And so therefore, he will not compromise in any way to gain the praise of his objectors. Right? It would have been easy for Jesus just to say, hey, settle down, guys. Let me explain this whole thing to you. Let me tell you what you want to hear. But instead, what does Jesus tell them? He says, I know you. I know you and I know what's in your heart. I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Or we could say, right, it could be translated, they do not have the love for God is not in them. Right? They love the darkness instead of the light, which leads them to love and to seek after the praise of other people. Right? Isn't that what we all find ourselves doing now and then, especially when our eyes are not fixed on Christ? But this stands in stark contrast to Jesus' love for God, which leads him to obedience even to the point of death, death on the cross. And I quoted it earlier in the prayer, Right, that, that Jesus, in his obedience, was then, uh, right, well, he died on the cross in obedience to the Father, but then the Father exalted him to the name that is above every other name. Jesus himself entrusted himself to the judgment of the Father. Jesus says, I have come in my Father's name, but you do not receive me. Yet if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? That's an interesting, once again, it's a weird thing that Jesus is saying to them, it seems to me, right? I don't come in my own name. I come in the Father's name, and so you don't receive me. But if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. What does that mean? Well, for those who do not love God, and whose love for God, or for those whose love for God runs cold, it is always more palatable to believe false teaching and false teachers. Right? It's always more appealing. Right? False teachers inevitably, right? inevitably, uh, that meant that these guys, uh, I want to read a, a quote for you, inevitably that, that meant that, that these uh, Jewish leaders were open to messianic claimants uh, who used flattery and who uh, panted after great reputations, or whose value, uh, values were so closely attuned to their audience that their audience felt that they were very wise and farsighted. Let, let me repeat that part again. So this is from D.A. Carson. Um, he says, inevitably, this meant right, that, that they would receive um, those who came in their own name. It meant that they were open to messianic claimants who used flattery. Think about teachers using flattery or who panted after great reputations or whose values were so closely attuned to their audience that their audience felt that they were very wise and farsighted. They were not open to the Messiah that Jesus was turning out to be, one who thought only glory and praise worth pursuing was the glory of God. 
think about that for a moment, right? They were willing to receive other false teachers, but they weren't willing to receive Jesus. 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 5, in that verse, Paul warns Timothy that the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, sound teaching, but claiming itching ears, I'm sorry, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. When I think about that temptation, right, that, that these, these Jewish leaders fell into and that D.A. Carson points to, Temptation to listen to teaching that tickles our ears, that makes us feel good about ourselves, that makes us feel really smart, like we've got it all figured out. How much more, I believe, we need to be cautious today. Right? Because excellent teaching is just a click away on the internet. But so are false teachers. The good and the bad, it's equal, right? D.A. Carson also wrote that the chief judgment on those who deny Jesus as the promised Messiah, the Son of God, is not so much that they have no Messiah, but that they follow false messiahs. And I think that's a reality. Probably everyone that we know is following after some Messiah, someone who would save them, save them from their pain, save them from their grief, save them from their guilt, make them feel good about themselves. They want, everybody wants to be saved but not everybody is willing to come to Christ for that. And so we must be gar on guard against the same thing. If you find that the teachers and preachers or podcasters that you listen to flatter you with words or that their values are so closely attuned to your current viewpoint that it makes you feel like you are very wise and very farsighted, you just need to check yourself, right? You need to be aware and check the spiritual temperature First, I would say of your own heart. Engage your own love for God. Right? If these speakers, right, I, I, I've heard some that I feel like all they're trying to do is whip up anger, get people to be angry. I had a conversation with somebody recently, and I said, you know, this isn't that different from the worship wars. And, and of course, it was too young to know what the worship wars were. Right? But, but it was this, this war against, are we going to stay with hymns or are we going to go to choruses? And this may sound silly now, but it was a big deal back in the 80s. And people were getting riled up about it. Some said, you know, we, we refuse to be uh, manipulated emotionally by all of these choruses. And others said, no, 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 we refuse to sing these dead hymns, right, with no heart to them. Well, what do we do as a church? We do both, right? We think there's a good mix to be had. But, but so much of what was happening in those worship wars was less about loving God and more about fighting for their side. We want to be cautious about that. If you find that in your own discussion, debate of whatever it is that you are you're showing anger toward others, that your love for God is shrinking, check your heart and ask who are you listening to? Are you listening uh, and seeking after the glory that comes 
are, are the people that you're listening to seeking the glory that comes from you, the listener? Are you listening to people who are simply trying to entice you and make you feel smart? Are you simply uh, trying to keep, are they simply trying to keep you coming back for more? Or are they seeking the glory that comes from God alone? And I pray, I pray that we as a church and we as individuals, that that would be true of us, that we would be seeking the glory that comes from God. And that whatever teaching, whatever discussions, whatever fellowship that we have would increase our love for God and our love for one another. Right? Isn't that the great commandment and the second? That we would love God with all our hearts. We love our neighbor as ourselves. So what is the fruit that's being produced in your own life? Does it reflect love of God within you? You see, where we seek glory determines who we receive and who we believe. Right? Jesus comes in the Father's name seeking the Father's glory. And the overflow is true love for God, the kind of love that's reflected in everything we do. So one, another reason why we can believe Jesus, right? Jesus is God's promised Savior because we know that he comes in the Father's name, seeking the Father's glory. The fourth reason that we can know is Jesus reconciles rightly believing sinners to God. Jesus reconciles rightly believing sinners to God, and that's our fourth point. So as Christians, we are called to set our hope in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. As the hymn says, our, our hope is built in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. As I said, the testimony of Jesus is found throughout the scriptures. And I, and I want to read uh, just a short passage from Hebrews 11, starting with verse 24. So Hebrews 11, starting with verse 24. This is about Moses. It says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasure of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. And then jumping down to verse 39. And all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something far better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So really he's pointing, talking about Jesus. These Jewish leaders, right, they were placing all of their hope in Moses and his teaching. But the reality is, and what we see from the book of Hebrews, is that if Moses was able to come back and speak, what would he speak about? He would proclaim the glory of Jesus Christ. He would teach about the marvelous forgiveness that Jesus purchased with his life. Forgiveness that was whispered about throughout uh, God's whole word. Every time God held out that hope of salvation, all through Moses' life, it was all pointing to Jesus. But sadly, these Jewish leaders, they may have been scholars, 
right? But they missed the main point that Moses taught, right? They rejected Jesus because they thought that Jesus didn't love, live up to the ideal that they believe Moses had put forward in his writings. It's interesting, right? Moses and everything he wrote was, was to proclaim Jesus. But when they looked at Jesus' writings, they thought Jesus didn't stack up. And so then in this kind of scene, this cosmic courtroom, you can imagine Jesus calling Moses to, witness, to the witness stand. And Moses stands as a witness against them. Imagine their horror when their defender, the one who they had placed their hope, became their accuser. Jesus says, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you had believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus reconciles rightly believing sinners to God. But those who reject Christ, those who ultimately reject Christ, even if they have studied the Bible for years, right, even if they attended church every Sunday, even if they've read theologically uh, rich Christian authors, unless they believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, they will stand condemned on the last day. This should be a strong warning to us. We should ask, where are we placing our hope? Right? Genuine faith in Christ, even if it is a simple, childlike faith, is more valuable than dead, loveless doctrine. I think about the, the person who you, you, we may be tempted to look down upon because their faith is so simple. Right? Their doctrine is so incomplete. Maybe even as incomplete as the thief on the cross who turned to Jesus and Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. The biographer uh, Ian Murray told a story regarding Martin Lloyd-Jones. And Martin Lloyd-Jones was a fav- famous uh, preacher from Wales. And from almost, almost 30 years, he was the minister of Westminster Chapel in London. Um, and his ministry actually spanned over World War II. And he preached uh, during World War II during the time of, of the air raids, even in London. <clears throat> he was known for being a powerful preacher with an incredibly sharp mind. And, and if you're interested, his sermon recordings are available online for free. But as you can imagine, right, that, that young preachers then, and I would say probably some even now, wanted desperately to imitate Martin Lloyd-Jones. And so Ian Murray told about this young man who had told him how much Uh, he had been influenced by Dr. Lloyd-Jones. And then he indicated that that he even wore his collar as tight as Lloyd-Jones did. As he conveyed that story, it was with some sadness. I mean, think about it, right? Uh, Think about, imagine that you have given your life's work to studying and teaching God's word because it is the most important thing to you. And the one thing that someone walks away with is your sense of style. Really? Ian Murray had served with Martin Lloyd-Jones as his assistant for many years, and he knew him well. And you could hear the disappointment in his voice as he relayed the story. Yes, we should follow after Lloyd-Jones, and we should imitate parts of him, but, but not how he wore his clothes. This young man had completely missed the point. 
want to make sure that, that we're not following after teachers, leaders, trends, simply because they sound good. Right? It's possible for us to go through all of the motions and never truly believe. So we have to ask ourselves, where are we placing our hope? Is our hope in Christ and his salvation? Right? He is the promised savior, God's promised savior. Right? He's, he's the only one who always seeks the Father's will. He's the one that the Father has borne witness about. He is the one who came in his Father's name, seeking his Father's glory. And he is the only one that can rightly reconcile uh, believers to God. Right? He is the most glorious Savior. And I pray that God would guard each of us from missing him, missing the forest, the big picture of who Jesus is, by getting lost somehow in the details. Well, we are able to trust Jesus, that he is God's promised Messiah. So I want to pray that we would indeed embrace him. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ and his work. Lord, we thank you that, that you saw fit to not only send Christ into a darkened world, that salvation might be purchased on our behalf, only, the only response required of us is that we believe. I pray that you would indeed give us hearts to believe. And Lord, I pray that if, if there are any here who don't know you, right, that their consciences would be pricked. That they would indeed come to know you. That you would have mercy upon them and forgive them of their sins and give them life eternal in Jesus Christ. And Father, for those of us who have known Christ for years, I pray that you would help us to not lose sight of who Jesus is. To not somehow get distracted either by the world around us or uh, by the intricacies of theology. Pray that you protect us from our heart growing cold. Help us, Father, to glorify Jesus Christ as the King of kings and Lord of lords, the, the only one who is worthy of all praise, glory, and honor. In his name we pray, amen.